Well, good morning, church. How you doing? Well, I want to uh, just uh, highlight a couple of things uh, for you before we get to the message today. First of all, here now we are in December, uh, which means uh, we've got a... Christmas Eve services coming up in just a few weeks. Um, I want to let you know that Christmas Eve this year is on December 24th, uh, just in case you, you weren't uh, sure about that. I just want to make sure you're awake uh, here this morning. But uh, this year is going to be a, a great year because for the first time, uh, we're going to have uh, Christmas Eve at all of our campuses. So five uh, services over three campuses, uh, five o'clock at our Danville campus, five o'clock and seven o'clock at Fort Madison in Burlington. It's going to be a great evening. Really want to encourage you to invite family, uh, friends, coworkers, invite as many people as you can. It'll be a great evening. Uh, we'll come together to celebrate the incarnation, to hear from the Lord, to sing together. Uh, and so just uh, plan to come out for that and we will just have a really really great time and kick off Christmas in style, all right? So be looking forward to that. And then after the message today, uh, this is a first Sunday and every first Sunday of the month, uh, we do communion. And so I want to encourage you as we go through the message today to be preparing your heart for that. I think that the message today will help you to do so. And so uh, with that as an introduction, uh, let's pray and then we'll get to work, all right? So Father, we come to you uh, today and uh, we are so thankful for your son and for all that you have been and will be to us and for us and in us through him. We want to worship him today. We want to sing about him. We want to consider and think about just how precious he is. And we pray now as we come to a very special uh, portion of the Bible, uh, we want to pray that your spirit will be poured upon us today. We want to pray that you'll give us ears to hear You'll give us eyes to see. Most of all, you'll give us hearts that are receptive uh, to the great truths that we're going to look at. Lord, I want to pray specifically for those um, who are here who have not placed their faith in Jesus. We want to pray that that will change by the time that we are done here in just a few minutes. We want to pray that you will bring people a saving faith in you. For those of us who, who have been saved, who have experienced the wonderful power of the gospel, I want to pray that you'll give us a deeper and greater appreciation so we may leave today rejoicing and worshiping you in a greater way than we were able to when we came. And in all things, Lord, we want to pray that you'll get the glory and through you getting the glory that we may grow into the image of your son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. All right, the next two weeks in the big story, we're going to be looking at what are known as the New Testament epistles. The epistles are letters written primarily by the apostles Paul, Peter, and John uh, to first century churches, pastors, and or individual Christians. Now, since you likely know that the epistles comprise a, a large chunk, nearly half of the New Testament, uh, you might be wondering why we're only going to spend a couple of weeks uh, studying them here in the big story. So let me explain that uh, because we're a New Testament church, we are regularly in the epistles. We, we spend more time in the epistles than pretty much in any other part of the Bible other than the Gospels. And, and that's because they, they speak uh, to the issues and the challenges and the mission that, that God has called us to. And so since we are regularly in them, we're not going to spend as much time in them here in the big story. But in fact, uh, beginning in February, we're actually going to begin a four or five month series in the New Testament epistle of Ephesians. And so if you're like, hey, 
I want more epistles. There's more epistles coming in 2019. All right. Now, with that said, today we're going to look at what is almost universally considered to be not only the most important New Testament epistle, but really the most important book in the entire Bible, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, you can find that on page 736 in our auditorium Bibles. And I really want to encourage you to have your Bibles out and ready to go this morning. We're going to turn a couple of different times. and We're really going to dig in to what Paul has to say here, not only to Rome, but of course to us today. Now, as you're turning there, I have to tell you that I'm kind of internally chuckling right now at the audacity of what I'm about to attempt. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, one of uh, my heroes, John Piper, uh, covered Romans in about 200 messages. I'm going to try and do it in one. All right, so he preached uh, on Romans for about six years. Six years, all right, Sunday after Sunday. And uh, I'm going to give it about 45 minutes. Give or take a few minutes. (laughs) Give or or take a few minutes there on that, all right? It's actually kind of ridiculous, to be honest with you. And uh, we're going to see how it's going to go. But actually, I think it's going to be okay because we're really just going to focus on the first three chapters and primarily on two verses in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These verses give the summary of Romans and really provide us with the theme of the entire book. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to read the first 17 verses to set up 16 and 17, all right, kind of set the context for us. And so why don't you follow along now as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there's a whole, 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 whole lot that we could talk about here. 
But I think it's pretty easy to see from these verses that Romans is, is really about just one thing. One primary thing. Romans is about the gospel. You will know that in verse 1, Paul says that he has been set apart for the gospel. In verse 9, he says he is a servant of the gospel. In verse 15, he says that he is eager to preach the gospel. And in verse 16, he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In all, Paul references the gospel six times in the first 17 verses, making it clear that in his introduction that this is what Romans is all about. Now, I just want to take a moment here to try and emphasize for you, if I can, how important the gospel is. I told you just a minute ago that Romans is by and large considered to be the most important book in the Bible. And then I just told you that Romans is all about the gospel, which means that the gospel is the most important topic in all of the scriptures. Paul will actually go on to say in his next letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he wants to remind the Corinthians of the matter of first importance. Now, think about how significant this is, all right? Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. So he wrote about a lot of things, a lot of important things, and yet he says the most important thing by far that I need to teach you, that I need to tell you about is the gospel. Therefore, as Christians, if we understand nothing else, we must must, must understand the gospel. Now then, what is the gospel? Well, well, that's what Paul is going to spell out in the rest of the letter. He gives an initial summary here in verses 16 through 17. In these verses, Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God and the gospel is the righteousness of God. In fact, that's the outline for today. The gospel is the power of God and the gospel is the righteousness of God. Before we dig into that outline, though, I want to talk about the word gospel itself. The word gospel is literally good herald, good herald. Uh, In the first century, when an emperor uh, won a victory and he wanted to make known his victory to the, the uttermost parts of his empire, he would send heralds who would carry the message of his triumph everywhere and to Everyone. So, so, of course, these were in the days before cell phones and the Internet, all right? So you weren't able just to pick up your phone and to communicate with everybody that you won this great victory. And so what an emperor would do is he would send messengers, heralds, and they would declare, they would proclaim to everyone that he had won. Now, now here's what this means. This means that the gospel is a declaration. The gospel is a proclamation. The gospel's not good advice to be followed. It's good news to be responded to. Did you catch that? It's not good good advice. It's not some, some instructions. It's good news to be responded to. Closer look at the Greek word for gospel will help to bring this out. And I don't do this very often, but I think it'll be really helpful today. This is the Greek word for gospel, all right? And so you see the, the you here. Actually, this is how you say it, euangeloi. In fact, why don't you say that with me? It's just kind of a cool word to say, right? Euangeloi, all right? Right, ready? Euangeloi, okay, good. So you see the EU, okay? So think about that. That means good. So you've heard a eulogy, right? It's a good word about someone, all right? So euangeloi, so it's good. And then 
angeloi, what word do you see there? What English word do you see there? It's a word we're going to sing about this month, and we're going to read about, and we're going to see examples of. What is the word? It's angel. It's angel. Now, what is an angel? Now, by the way, what an angel is not is a rosy-cheeked, boyish creature, okay, with wings, okay? An angel is not that creepy-looking thing you put on top of your Christmas tree, all right? An angel is a herald. We'll sing, hark the herald, angels sing. Angels are heralds. They're messengers. Specifically, angels are messengers of God. Angels are God's messengers that, that bring his news to man. In fact, here's a great example of this. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. On that first Christmas night, 2,000 years ago, what did the angel announce to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This, my friends, is the gospel. The gospel is good news that brings great joy. By the way, one of the reasons that the gospel is good news that brings great joy is because it's not giving us advice or instruction on what we need to do to make it to God. It's, it's news about what God has done to bring us to him. In other words, the angels don't come to the shepherds and say, hey, I want to tell you that if you follow these steps and you do these things and you live this kind of life, that you will be able to make it to God. No, the angels come and they announce them and say, here's what God has done to come to you. As I've told you before, this is what separates the gospel message from every other religious message. Religion tells us, here's what you have to do. The gospel tells us, here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. Now, with that in mind, what then is the gospel? Well, if we look at verse 16 again, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, I just want to say, and, and here's where it's going to get, uh, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit today. And you're really going to have to have your thinking caps on, okay? Uh, because you're going to need to follow with me really, really closely. These are some deeper truths, but they are the most wonderful truths in the world if you're willing to work a little bit. So you're going to have to work up a little bit with me uh, here today. I'm going to work hard. You work hard. And when we leave, we're going to see that God's done some great things. You ready to do that? All right. So the gospel is the verbal form of the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. When someone believes the gospel, the good news of the gospel message, God's power enters their life and they are saved. So, so the gospel is this good news. The Let me say it this way. Uh, the gospel is God's power in written or spoken form. It's God's power in verbal form so that when someone believes what they've heard or what they read, God's power comes into their lives and they are saved. Now, if this is going to strike us the way that it needs to, it's imperative that we understand why salvation is necessary. We have to understand why we need to be saved in the first place. If you're like right now, you're like, oh yeah, the gospel, I get the gospel, I understand the gospel, but it's not really kind of burning a hole in your heart. That's probably because you don't understand why you need to be saved in the, in the first place. In other words, you probably don't understand the bad news. Because you see, in order to appreciate the good news, you first of all have to get the bad news. Because the good news really only seems good when you understand the bad news first, all right? You following that? All right, so, so what's the bad news? Well, 
that's what Paul is going to go on to talk about in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and half of chapter 3. In fact, here's what he says. Look at verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it's really important for us to realize that Paul is talking about every one of us here. When he says the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he's talking about our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. We know this because in the rest of chapters 1, 2, and 3, he goes to great lengths to show that this is the case. In this section of Romans, Paul acts as kind of a prosecuting attorney of sorts, and he basically just levels over and over again one charge against this. And I would like us to look at the summation of his charges in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. So so turn over to chapter 3 and look at how Paul kind of summarizes these charges that he's levying against us. He says this, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, what's the operative phrase in these three verses? Paul uses the same phrase five times in three verses. He's actually quoting from Psalm 51 here. But he uses the same two words back to back over and over again. What is that phrase? It's No one. No one, not even one. Paul uses this phrase to make it clear that he's trying to get across that all of us are unrighteous and as a result stand condemned under the wrath of God. Let's talk uh, for a second about that famous passage in Romans chapter 1 that Christians uh, at times love to use to condemn sins like homosexuality. Let's talk about that for a second, all right? Uh, Because, yes, while Paul does use homosexuality as an example of unrighteousness, he also uses other examples like covetousness, envy, gossip, strife, deceit, and even disobedience to parents. You see, none of us gets out of Romans chapter 1 alive. Not one single one of us, right? So, so yes, okay, homosexuality is an example of unrighteousness, but there's lots of other examples, and every single one of us is guilty of multiple ones of the examples that Paul gives in Romans chapter 1. And the point is this, friends, every single one of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, stands condemned under the wrath of God. There is no difference, Paul will go on to say, right? Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. We've got to get this. We are all condemned under the wrath of God. Here's what the aforementioned Dr. Piper has to say about this matter. He says, when we hear that we are all under sin and that sinners will receive the wrath and fury of God, we need to be still and let that sink in. These are terrible words. When the omnipotent God has wrath and fury, no greater negative force can be conceived. We speak of the fury of a hurricane that flattens buildings, or the fury of a tornado that snaps off trees like a toothpick. 
But these forces are as nothing compared to the fury of the wrath of God. An illustration of this just last Sunday. Last Sunday during our Snowmageddon event here um, in southeast Iowa, I made the mistake of deciding that I was going to take uh, one of my children to go get a haircut, all right? And so um, you understand that I grew up uh, on Lake Michigan, basically, and so I grew up uh, where this time of year it snows like every other day, all right? And so um, I, little snow doesn't really bother me, doesn't really concern me, and at the time that we left, it was like quarter after four, it didn't look too bad outside, everybody else is freaking out, no big deal, okay? Uh, and so when we, 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 we drove there, it was, it was really fine. Uh, but after the haircut was done and we started home, it was getting dark. And at that point, it was looking a little dicey. And by the time we got back on 34, the wrath and fury of the snowstorm, the blizzard, okay, had, had arrived. And I don't want to tell you, it was, it was pretty terrifying because you couldn't see 10 feet in front of the vehicle. The wind is blowing, like blowing you literally off the highway. You're not sure if you're going to run into a car that you can't see. All kinds of cars in the ditch. And uh, it was only my superior driving skills <laughs> that actually got us home. Now, um, so all I have to say is there were, every other car was in the ditch. This car made it home, okay? Some of you will get that later. But... Um, all joking aside, it was terrifying. And I just got to thinking, how terrifying would it really be if we understood what Jonathan Edwards was talking about when he says that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God? How terrifying must it actually be if our eyes were really opened to the wrath of a holy, righteous God against our sinfulness and our wickedness. And my friends, we do need to let that sink in because it's only when we allow that to sink in will we truly understand and appreciate how good the good news is. That's why the good news is so good, because we desperately need to be saved. And the gospel is the power of God that provides that salvation. Now then, let's talk about what makes the gospel so powerful. And what makes the gospel so powerful is that it is the righteousness of God. Look at verse 17 again. Paul says this, For in it, that it of course is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says the power of the gospel comes from the fact that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, let's talk about what the righteousness of God is. And you've got to understand what the righteousness of God is if you're going to understand Romans, because Paul uses this phrase 35 times in the letter, okay? So what exactly is the righteousness of God? Uh, to quote commentator um, Colin Cruz, the righteousness of God is his saving action whereby he brings people into a right relationship with himself. The righteousness of God is his saving action, what he does to bring people into a right relationship with himself. As we just talked about, we are by nature unrighteous, every single one of us. 
And in our unrighteousness, we are separated from God. We are out of relationship with him. So maybe I need to point out here or explain. To, to be righteous very simply means to have a right standing. If you have a right standing with your employer, you're in a right relationship with them. If you have a right standing with your spouse, you're in a right relationship with them. So, so to be righteous with God means to be right in your relationship, in your standing before him. However, because of our sin, we are unrighteous. We're out of relationship with him. We do not have a right standing before him. However, in the gospel, God reveals the saving action he has undertaken to deal with our unrighteousness. In the gospel, God reveals what he has done to make us right with him again, what he has done to make us righteous. So you're tracking here, we're unrighteous. We can't have a relationship with God. In the gospel, God reveals what he has done to make us righteous, to make us in a right relationship with him. Now, here in verses 16 through 17, uh, Paul doesn't tell us how God has done this. He doesn't tell us what God has done to make us righteous. For that, we once again have to turn to Romans chapter 3. So flip back over there with me again, and we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. Now, you're not going to want to miss this. Okay, so if you want to put a star by Romans 3, 21 through 26, it's a really good place to do so because... Uh, it probably is, and I know I say the word important a lot, but this probably is the most important paragraph in the Bible. So let's read it together now, all right? Here's what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means made known, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to him. That's the Old Testament. It's what we've been studying this entire year. They all point to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of uh, God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what did God do to make us right with him again? Well, verse 25 says that he put Jesus forward as a propitiation. Now, I know that you probably did not use the term propitiation this week or the week before that or maybe ever in your life. And I realize you may not even understand what that word means. And you may like, hey, I can't get into these big terms, all right? And I just want to tell you that there are many churches today uh, where you will not hear this term used. And the reason for that is, is that most pastors do not believe that A, their people can understand it, and B, will accept it if they do. However, I have much, much higher expectations of you. I believe you can understand it, I can believe you can accept it, and I believe that you will rejoice if you really understand what it means. It's a biblical word, it's a great and it's a wonderful word. I actually think it's just fun to say, all right? The word propitiate, why don't you just try that with me here today? We're trying all kinds of things. Say it with me, propitiate. Now, what is propitiate? To pr propitiate, it's hard to say, okay? Maybe that's why people don't like to say it, I don't know. But to propitiate means to satisfy wrath. 
to satisfy wrath. That's all that it means. It means to satisfy wrath. All right? God makes us right with himself by putting Jesus forward to satisfy his wrath against our sins. So we're unrighteous, we're sinners. God being a righteous and holy God by nature has to be angry with sin. He has to judge sin. He has to carry out his wrath against sin, which means against us. However, God is also loving, and so in his love for us, he puts Jesus forward, okay? He brings Jesus onto the scene to take his wrath against our sins so that we don't have to. I told you before that the essence of the gospel is Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Well, my place, your place, was under the wrath of God, But in verse 25, Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that I deserve, that we deserve. Jesus propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath by taking it upon himself. So so here's the wonderful truth. God carried out all of his wrath on Jesus so that there is no more wrath to come down on me. Isn't that wonderful? That's not all, though. You'll note that in verse 24... Paul says that there's something else that God did to make us right with him. Not only did he carry out his wrath against our sin on Jesus, but he also took Jesus' righteousness and gave it to us. Verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. Now here's another big word, justification, all right? Justify, what does that mean? Well, to justify means to declare Righteous. We were unrighteous. We deserved the wrath of God. All right. God's wrath comes down on Jesus. And at the same time, we get Jesus' righteousness so that God now says, you are righteous in my sight. You now have a right standing before me. You now can be restored to a right relationship with me that you were created to have in the first place but that your sin is taken away from you. So, so two things are going on at the cross, okay? And they happen simultaneously. One, we no longer experience God's wrath. And two, we gain Christ's righteousness so that we now are able to enter into a relationship with God. Let me see if I can summarize all of this, all right? So your head ready to explode right now? Let me, let me see if I can summarize all of this. Our sin, again, has made all of us unrighteous. It has made all of us incapable of having a relationship with God. We all are, to a man and to a woman, condemned before him and sentenced to spend eternity experiencing his wrath against our sin. That's the bad news. However, the good news, the gospel, is that in love for us, God sent Jesus to take the wrath we deserve so that through faith in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and we can be made righteous in God's sight. Let's look at verse 26 for a moment, all right? Because in verse 26, we have what I would call the divine dilemma, all right? So so here's the divine dilemma. God is both holy and righteous, but he is also loving, all right? So in his holiness, in his righteousness, uh, he requires, he demands that sin be punished, now, I know that there's a lot of people today who have a problem with the wrath of God. They have a, have a real problem with God being angry at sin. But that's because they don't think about it very uh, deeply. Uh, so, so just see if we can do that here for a second, right? Uh, we all, uh, when we see a murderer or a rapist or a thief, we all cry out for justice, right? 
we all cry out for those things to be punished, right? We, we, we feel like we're, I mean, justice, right? Justice needs to be served. How much more do you think a holy, perfect, righteous God cries out for justice to be served? In fact, if you take away God's anger at sin, you take away his justice, right? If you take away his justice, you no longer have a God. He is no longer God, right? You've just created something in your own image. We all, by, by the way, why do we, why do we cry out for justice? Why are we able to say some things are wrong and some things are right? Well, it's because we're created in the image of a God who knows that right, there's right and wrong, who creates, okay, right, okay, and who punishes wrong. And so we need a God, we want a God, there is a God who is angry at sin, he's just. At the same time, however, God is loving. If we look at chapter 2, it, says, it tells us that God doesn't want any to, actually it says that, that his kindness is what leads us to repentance. God desires for us all to come to repentance. He wants to be restored to us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, so here's the deal. God is just, he is holy, and he's loving. How do those things come together? God loves us, but we're sinners, and he can't have a relationship with sin. So what does he do? He becomes not only just, but the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. God, in his justice, requires sin to be paid for, but in his love, he sends his son to pay for that sin so that he can be just, but also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe we could put it this way. Um, if I ask you, what does God save us from? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Sin? Satan? You know what the answer is? The answer is God saves us from himself. He saves us from himself. And how does he save, him, save us from himself? He saves us from himself by taking the penalty himself in his son. Now, there's one more key thing that I haven't elaborated on here. And that is how is this salvation Received. Paul goes to great lengths, and if you've been paying attention, you've seen this over and over again, is that, but in fact, we see it both here in chapter 3 and in chapter 1, that we receive the righteousness of God through faith and faith alone. Let me be explicit here. The gospel is for everyone. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're here uh, and you believe that this good news can't be for you, I'm happy to tell you that you're wrong. I mean, if the gospel was for the guy who wrote this letter, then the gospel is for all of us, right? You see, the gospel came through Paul because the gospel, first of all, came to Paul. And you have to remember that, that Paul was a guy who, before he was saved, was murdering Christians, Okay? He was doing everything that he could be, do, to, to, to rid the world of Christianity. And yet, the gospel was powerful enough to save him. And if it was powerful enough to save him, it's powerful enough to save you. And here is all that you have to do to be saved. You simply have to believe it. To believe means to trust it. You have to trust that Jesus did die in your place and that through faith in him, you receive the righteousness of God. Now, now here's the thing, okay? Every single one of us is trusting in something for salvation. We're trusting in something. We're trusting in our good works. 
Uh, we're trusting in our goodness. We're trusting in our family heritage. We're trusting in the fact that we go to church, that we give an offering, that we do good deeds in the community. We're, we're trusting in our intelligence. We're trusting in our money. All of us are trusting in something. I just want to tell you, the only thing that will gain you salvation and trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is, that is it. There is nothing else okay, that is going to give you a relationship with God. There is nothing else that is going to gain you heaven than trusting in Jesus Christ to take God's wrath for your sin. Jesus in your place. So I want to call out to you today and I want to urge you that if you have not as of yet to this point in your life received Jesus Christ as your Savior to do so today. You see, salvation um, is a gift. That's what Paul says in verse 24. We're justified by God's grace as a gift. So, so in order to receive the gift, there are two things that have to happen, right? You, you have to be given a gift, and then once you are given the gift, you have to do what? You have to accept it. You have to take it. So we've so got a great example of this coming up, right? Next couple of weeks, we're all going to give gifts. I'm going to get some extra gifts because it's my birthday here in a couple of weeks, okay? And I'm just telling you that today so that you have plenty of time if you still haven't gotten me a gift, all right? Um, this year I'm registered at Bed Bath & Beyond and Target. So, no. Actually, I try never to go into those stores. I think it's just every wedding or, you know, reception or whatever those things are. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, shower. Um, so uh, it's really at Shields and Cabela's, so you can, uh, and it's going to be under Galen Carr because that's my first name. I don't want to get confused with Chris Carr. Some, there's other Chris Cars. So um, anyway, but, but here's the thing, okay? Now you're really confused and, and distracted, right? So, but again, it, it, God has given the gift. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God giving us the gift of his son. He has given the gift for you, for every single one of you, for all of us, every single person in the world, he's given that gift. The question is, are we going to accept it? But the further question is, is why wouldn't you? When you recognize and you realize that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and you are both of those things, you are ungodly and you are unrighteous. Now, I'm not just pointing out to you that the same thing is true for me. I'm ungodly. I am unrighteous. My only hope, my only hope of getting out from underneath God's wrath is for somebody else to take that wrath for me. And the gospel tells us that somebody did on the cross. And all that we have to do to receive that gift is simply to trust, is simply to believe, is to simply take Hold of that truth. If you've not done so yet, will you please do so today? Now, with that said, let me speak to those of us who've received this gift. If you've been saved from God's wrath by the power of the gospel, what should your response be? What difference should it make in your life? Uh, this is actually something that Paul addresses at length in Romans, but I just want to point you to two things this morning in closing. One, the gospel should produce a life of sacrifice. The gospel should produce a life of sacrifice. 
Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word therefore here is an important one. It always is, by the way, in the Bible. Anytime you see therefore, right, you should ask, what's it there for? Or Paul is referring back to everything that he said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, as we've just seen a small sample of this morning, we have the most wonderful description and explanation of the gospel. And so Paul turns the page here to Romans 12, and he says, Now, on the basis of all that God has done for you, in light of and in view of all the mercies of God, what should our response be? Our response should be to offer up to God our life as a living sacrifice. I'm not talking about killing yourself or anything here. It's saying give your life to God and serve him in every way that you can. In other words, here's the point. What Paul is saying is that the only legitimate response to the gospel is a life that goes all in. That's the only legitimate response. In light of everything that God has done for you, in light of where you were headed, but in light of where God is taking you now, the only legitimate response is a life that is given fully to him. And I want to ask you here this morning, uh, have you done so? Are you doing so? In view of what God has done for you, have you and are you continuing to give your life to him? Two, and this goes right along with the first one, the gospel should produce a life of witness. The gospel should produce a life of witness. Uh, I want to take you back to chapter 1 for a moment. You don't need to turn there. I'll just tell you, just remind you of what Paul says in verse 14. Romans 1.14, Paul says that he is under obligation. And he is under obligation to everyone. To the Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish, to everybody. He says, I have an obligation. Seeing as how I've received the gospel, I now have an obligation, and that obligation is to preach the gospel. Paul says, okay, the gospel has created on me, in me, an obligation, and that obligation is to share the gospel with everyone. And friends, I want you to hear me today. Harmony Bible Church, you believers here today, you need to realize that we have the same obligation that Paul had. We have the same obligation to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with everyone. Or to put it as David Platt does, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Do you believe that? Do you believe you have an obligation? I want to suggest to you today that you can evaluate your understanding of the gospel by how obligated you feel to share the gospel with others. You see, because if you don't feel an obligation, if you don't feel that you have a debt, if that's not a priority in your life, then I would suggest that you really don't understand the gospel. Because when you understand the gospel, when you understand what God has done for you, it can't help but create in you a sense that you need to do everything you can to share that life-altering, eternity-changing, reality-truth message with everybody that you can. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 and 15, he says, For Christ's love compels me. 
In other words, what he's saying, it puts a constraint on my heart. Christ's love, the gospel constrains me because I've become convinced that one died for all and he died for all, get this, that I might no longer live for myself, but for him who died and was raised again. Do you get the gospel? If you get the gospel, it will lead you to share the gospel. I want to give you an example of a man who very, very wonderfully illustrates this. I was able to preach his funeral this week. His name is Brian Stone. He was a Harmony member for over 40 years. And for nearly that entire time, Brian Stone lived under an obligation. He felt an obligation to share the gospel with everybody he possibly could. And not only did he feel the obligation, but he lived out that obligation. He shared the gospel with family members. He shared the gospel with coworkers. He shared the gospel with the students he taught at SEC. He shared the gospel with neighbors. And probably most significantly, he shared the gospel with young men in our student ministry and our children's ministry for over 30 years. Faithfully, faithfully, faithfully. In fact, I heard a story of just two weeks ago when he very clearly laid out the gospel to the 10 boys that he taught on Wednesday night. And my friends, and this is a, this is a church story, okay? This is, this is a, uh, I'm just, something I just want to push to you who are part of our body here today. Brian has created a hole. In the last three weeks, we've lost two spiritual giants of Harmony Bible Church. Men who were faithful, sharing the gospel for a long, long time. And I want to ask you, who's going to step into that gap? Because there's a gap. There's a hole. And there is only going to be, there's only a church here today because of men like Wendell Williams and Brian Stone. The church does not continue without people who live out our obligation to share the gospel. You're you're sitting where you are sitting and enjoying what you are enjoying this morning because people have faithfully shared the gospel. And if we don't have young people in particular who stand up and say, I'm under obligation because of this wonderful news that I've received and I'm going to share it with as many people as possible, there will not be a church for our children. There will not be a church for the next generation. Again, as I said before, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for those who aren't here yet. And there are a lot of people who aren't here yet. And the way that they get here, by the way, they don't get here by you inviting them to church to hear me yak for 50 minutes, okay? They, 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 they get here by you going out and sharing the gospel. And then once they believe the gospel, bringing them here so we can disciple them. In other words, don't bring them to church, be the church. And the way that we're the church is by living under obligation. And that's an obligation to call everyone, all nations, to the obedience of faith. Romans 1.4. Let's pray.